Good morning, Village. Uh, good to be with you all this morning. If you're new to our church, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and over the past few weeks, we've been in a teaching series on the parables of Jesus. And the parables are just simply stories that Jesus used to, to teach the people what the kingdom of God is like. And one of the reasons I think that Jesus taught in stories is because stories have a way of connecting with us that information just simply doesn't. Stories stay with us. Stories uh, make us think. Stories stir up emotions. Have you ever read a book or watched a film uh, that you just couldn't stop thinking about for ages afterwards? Well, this is what stories do. So let me start with a story. There once was a a young man called Robert Johnson and he, he wasn't a rich man. He wasn't born into privilege. He was a black man in the divided deep south in the 1930s in the United States. And he used to go to these bars where where people would go to listen to live music and sing and dance and drink. And Robert, by all accounts, was a pretty decent harmonica player. But more than anything, he wanted to play guitar. He used to watch the guitar players and wish that he could be like them. To wish that, that people would dance to his tune. To wish that people would look up to him in the way that they looked up to them. And on those hot, sticky Mississippi nights, when the band would take a break to go outside to cool off, Robert would lift the guitar and try to play the blues. And the story goes that he was so bad that the people would go outside and try and get the band to come back in just so that he, they, they could stop him playing. But Robert couldn't let it go. He wanted to play guitar more than anything in the world. And then one day, Robert disappeared. Just gone for about six months, they say. He just wasn't seen around any of these bars on the local scene. Son House was one of those guitar players that Robert looked up to. And one night, after about six months, he was getting ready to play. And he looked up from the stage and he saw Robert Johnson walking through the door with a guitar guitar slung over his back. And Robert worked his way through the crowd. uh, And he he came up to the stage where the, the musicians were setting up. And he asked Son House if he could play. And Sunhouse agreed because he thought, well, he's only going to play for a few minutes and then the, the crowd are going to tell him to stop because he's so bad. But when Robert Johnson began to play that night, something incredible happened. The sound that came out of his guitar was like nothing anyone had ever heard before. He was doing things with his instrument that a seasoned pro like Sunhouse could, ne- could never do or had never even seen. And soon Robert was famous in that local scene in Mississippi. Everybody wanted to come and see him play. And so what happened to Robert Johnson? Well, the legend has it that Robert Johnson took his guitar to a crossroads at midnight. And there he met the devil. And the devil took his guitar and retuned it. And said he would give it back to him in exchange for Robert Johnson's soul. And Robert took that deal. So the legend goes. And Robert Johnson today is in the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's, he's seen as the father of blues music. He's, he's one of the most celebrated musicians of all time. And, and, and I want to be really clear when I tell a story. I'm not saying for one second that it's, that it's possible to, to actually sell your soul to the devil in exchange for getting good at guitar or being rich or being famous or anything at all. It's only the Lord God Almighty who has control over such things. But yet I think there's a lesson for us to learn in here. There's this biblical principle that talks about pursuing the things of the world like money and power and fame and security and all these kinds of things at the cost of losing your eternal soul, at the cost of of never giving any thought to what happens after you die. In fact, in in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is teaching about how the life of the people who follow him is a life of denying yourself and putting others first. And, and, And he says this, he says, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? In other words, 
What good is it if you achieve everything the world has to offer, but never receive eternal life? You see, it is possible. It is possible that you will get everything you've ever wanted in this life and end up being lost and outside of eternal life forever. And this is what our parable about is about this morning. Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus to get us thinking about the relationship between this life and the next life, between this life and eternity. And as we read through this story carefully, what, what we see is it's the state of your heart, not the status of your life, that determines your place in eternity. It's the state of your heart, not the status of your life, that determines your place in eternity. Now, sometimes when we read the teachings of Jesus, we lose some of the shock factor that these stories would have had to his original audience. Um, Jesus here is speaking to a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees, and he's confronting their beliefs about money and status and the afterlife. And the shock factor for them would have been that, that Lazarus, the poor beggar, went to heaven and the rich man went to hell. They would not have been able to believe this. Because there was a belief in those days that being rich was a sign of blessing, that you had God's favour. And if you were suffering or poor or disabled, that, that, you were, that was probably a result of a curse. And Jesus challenges this belief. These guys are thinking, how could this poor, destitute man, who was obviously cursed by God, end up in heaven? And how could this rich man, who was obviously blessed and favoured by God, end up in hell? Jesus is a, a master storyteller. And he wants us to see the differences between these two men. First in life, and then in the next life. The rich man is self-indulgent. He's wearing purple. And purple cloth was, was really expensive to make. It was, it was really only royalty that wore purple. He thinks he is something. He's putting himself in a position above other people. He shrouds himself in royal robes because in his mind, everyone is subject to him. Even his underwear is expensive. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says here that he wears fine linen. This is essentially his undergarments. That, that He's not buying boxers. He's not going to, to buy boxers from Dunn's. He's going to Calvin Klein or wherever, you know, the most expensive underwear comes from. And I love, I love that Jesus is talking about his underwear, you know. Like, you know somebody's really rich if, if they've got expensive underwear, the bit that nobody can see. I love that. And not only is he wearing, uh, is he dressing like royalty and wearing expensive underwear. He's feasting luxuriously every day. No supermarket food for him. His personal chef is bringing him the choicest cuts of meat, only the best organic local produce and the finest imported wines every single day. And that means that his servants were working every day to cook him these elaborate meals. You see, he's not even allowing them a day off uh, to observe the Sabbath. His, his sense of self-importance means that they can't even keep the Jewish law and worship God. And so we're starting to get a picture of what, this, what kind of man this guy is. And Jesus is essentially saying that the point about this guy is not that he's rich, but it's how he is rich. A man who puts himself above everyone else. So comfortable in his own wealth and status that it never occurred to him that he might be in need. You see, Lazarus was the beggar, but the rich man was the one in need. Things, uh, you see, I think the lesson we can learn here is that the things that we take pride in and identify ourselves by can blind us from our need of grace. 
The things that we take pride in and identify can blind us from our need of grace. Jesus isn't saying when he's talking about this rich man that that, that wealth is evil. Nor is he saying that being wealthy means that we've been blessed by God. In this parable, actually, it's the the broke and powerless beggar and suffering man. He's the one who's blessed. He's the one who's helped by God. And the rich man has everything he could ever want and need. And still he is blind to his need of the grace of God. He thinks he's sorted. He, He thinks he's got it all made. And honestly, I think sometimes we're all in danger of thinking this way. We are among the richest people to have ever lived on planet Earth. It may not feel like it. Your bank balance may may read in the minus. But we are among the richest people that have ever lived on planet Earth. We might not have private jets. We might not have luxury yachts. But in terms of, of comfort and our standard of living, we're closer to the people who do have those things than to the truly poor people in the world. Now, I'm not saying that those things in and of themselves are bad. We should thank God that we have food on our tables. We should thank God that we have roofs over our head. We should thank God that we can have drink and water clean and available as soon as we turn on the tap. We should thank God that we have mobile phones. But we need to be careful that these, don't, these things don't blind us from our need of Jesus. Before I was married, I lived with a couple of friends. And, and uh, when I first moved in the house, I didn't know how to get hot water. I, did, I just didn't know how to work it in the shower. And I thought it was just like an electric shower that you just turn it on. You had hot water and away you go. Um, I didn't realize that you had to put the immersion heater on and wait for 20 minutes. Then you had hot water and you could take a shower. And so for the first weeks, I was just taking cold showers every morning, just freezing every morning, being miserable. And then I started to convince myself, well, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe these guys just want to identify with, you know, the less fortunate people in the world. And, and I can learn to have cold showers if it means that I'm more aware of poor people in the world and it turns out I just needed to turn the immersion heater on but I think there's some Christians who think this way there there are people who think that if we follow Jesus we need to make ourselves poor that somehow uh, that somehow having some level of comfort is a bad thing but this isn't what the Bible teaches you see what the Bible teaches it's not about uh, how much money you have it's about how you have money In fact, if we believe what the Bible says, that all the good things we have come from God in the first place, then all the good things we have are God's, and so we're just stewards of money. And then it just becomes about choosing, are we going to be good stewards, responsible stewards, or are we going to be selfish stewards? And we need to be careful that having the level of comfort that we do doesn't blind us of our need for the grace of Jesus, or even our responsibility to help those who are in need. See, we're either blind to our need of grace or we're blinded by grace. We either think that we either live thinking that we're all good or we live knowing that only Jesus is good. We either live trying to make our own way or we live trusting that Jesus is the way. And listen, according to Jesus, whichever way we choose has eternal consequences because it's the state of our hearts, not the status of our lives that determines our place in eternity. That's a rich man. And then we come to Lazarus in the story. He's the only person in all of Jesus' parables to be given a name. He's the only character in all of the stories that Jesus tells that he gives a name to. And like most names in the Bible, his name is significant to the story. And Lazarus means the one who God helps. The one who God helps. Now at this point in the story, it doesn't look like God is helping him. He's lying Uh, covered in sores, being licked by dogs, on the street begging. 
But by giving him this name, Jesus is making the point. You see, he's saying, listen, the way that you value people and rank people, you think this man has no value. You've written him off. But he is the one that God helps. You've written him off, but but God hasn't written him off. And Lazarus is in bad shape here. He's not only poor, he's sick too, right? He's covered in sores. Maybe he had some kind of disease. Maybe he couldn't walk. He almost certainly had some kind of disability, right? Because he's, he's, he's so unwell that he has to be laid by others at the gate of the rich man's house. There was no welfare state or the NHS or anything like that back then in the ancient Near East. And so the only thing you could do to get help was to rely on the generosity of people who were better off than you. And in the Jewish law, in fact, God made it so that the, the rich were meant to take care of the poor. And so this, again, tells us something about the rich man. He's not playing his part. He's disobeying God and not helping Poor Lazarus. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Notice where Lazarus is. He's at the rich man's gate. And the fact that he even has a gate tells us that he's not just rich. He's really rich. Only the biggest and most expensive houses would have had a gate. It's essentially an estate. And the rich man has a gate to make sure that people like Lazarus never get in. The rich man is, is doing all he can to, to make sure that he never has to come into contact with a low life like Lazarus. And Lazarus doesn't even, he, he, he's so desperate, he doesn't even want a seat at the man's table. He would settle for the scraps that the rich man throws away. The, t- the table scraps would have been thrown to the dogs and, and Lazarus is so desperate for food that he longs even for dog food. And the rich man won't even give him what he's thrown away. And the dogs uh, wouldn't have been like dogs. Like we have the pets that, you know, like sleep by the fire and eat pedigree chum. They they were almost like, um, they were almost like semi-wild guard dogs. Almost certainly mangy and malnourished. Picture that in your head. And they came and licked Lazarus's wounds just to try and get any morsel of nourishment and protein they could. And Lazarus longs for the dog food, but instead the dogs are feeding off him and almost certainly adding to his anguish and pain. And eventually Lazarus dies. There's no mention of a funeral. There's no mourners. But even though there's no people to carry Lazarus, he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Isn't that a beautiful thought? The word here, Abraham's side, is literally Abraham's bosom. And that sounds kind of weird to us. Uh, the word bosom has different connotations for us. But, but uh, back in ancient times, if, if you were having a meal, you didn't, you didn't sit in chairs upright around a table. You reclined. You lay on, on one elbow uh, with your, your feet away from the table and your head towards the table. And you ate with, with one, one hand. And if you wanted to talk to the person next to you, you had to lean back and your head would literally be in their bosom. It, there was an intimacy in feasting together that I think we've lost. And so by describing it this way, that, that, that Lazarus is now in Abraham's bosom, Jesus is saying that Lazarus is now feasting with Abraham. He's gone from being starving and in the lowest place in society to feasting in the very highest place of honour. This is what God has done for Lazarus. And then the rich man dies too. And he gets a proper burial. But he doesn't get carried to the place of honour by the angel. We find him in hell. Not in a place of honour and feasting, but in a place of anguish and torment. And this isn't the end of the story. 
Jesus tells us that there's a conversation that happens. Three times the rich man speaks to Abraham and three times Abraham responds. And each time this happens, it reveals just how blind to his need of grace that the rich man really is. And there's something that bothers me when I read this. And maybe you noticed it too. Because when we read the second half of this parable, we realise that the rich man knew Lazarus. He recognises him. He sees him and he recognises him. He knows his name. This whole time, maybe we could have said, well, well, listen, the rich man, maybe he didn't know Lazarus was there. Or maybe he didn't even know he was in need. But he knows Lazarus. How many times has he walked past him at his gate and done nothing to help him? And we hear this and we rightly think, this is awful, that's terrible. How could, how could anyone act like this? But listen, I think one of the biggest dangers in reading this parable is reading it and not put ourselves in the position of the rich man. At least not seeing some of ourselves in the rich man. You see, let me ask you, who, who are the people in need that we see and recognise and walk past without doing anything? How often do we put our own comfort and our own needs above helping those whose needs are greater? Caring for the needy was one of the things that Jesus taught most about. The other was hell. And he teaches about both these things in this parable. Why? Because if we don't care for those in need, we're not loving God. If we're not caring for those in need, we're not loving God. The two go hand in hand. Jesus says that the two greatest commandments can't be separated they're not independent he says that they are to love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself they're distinct but they're not separate you see the rich man had a duty of care for Lazarus under Jewish law Leviticus 19 is is where we can read that command of to, to, to love your neighbor and and It lists all these ways of doing that, all these ways of loving other people, all these ways of caring for the needy. And every time one of those commands to help others in need uh, is given, it's followed by these four words. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, the whole reason why it's important that we love our neighbours and care for those in need is because God is the Lord, because God is God. And when we're saved, we're joined to God through Jesus and it's not in God's nature to neglect the poor. When we become Christians, we're adopted into God's family and in God's family, nobody goes without. If you don't love your neighbour, you're not loving God. This is such a common theme throughout the whole Bible that we could spend hours and hours just going to all the places in the Bible where that is taught. The caring for the needy is important as, as is part of loving God. And the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to here, they love money. It tells us earlier on in verse 14 that, that they love money. And, and, and Jesus says, actually, the thing that you love, the thing that you put value in, the way that you value people, God detests that. He says it's an abomination. We're kind of like the Pharisees in many ways. You see, they were well off. They were well educated. They had the best knowledge of the Bible out of anyone. They could recite the whole Old Testament off by heart. No problem. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're not caring for those in need, none of that matters. That doesn't, that's not enough. And it's not just because, it's not just because, uh, 
that the, the rich man didn't love Lazarus that he ended up in hell. It's because by not loving Lazarus proved that he didn't love God. This story shows us that, that he is his own God, that he's self-absorbed. So let me ask you again, who do we see and recognize in need and walk past without doing anything? And I'm preaching to myself, believe me. It struck me this week that, that we are in a time when we can't meet together the way we normally would. Uh, a time when we've had to, to, to press pause on the, way that, the, the ways that we normally do church. But we're also in a time when the voices of those in need are being magnified, especially the oppressed voices of our black brothers and sisters. And, and I, it occurred to me, what if God is leading us to rethink our priorities? What if, what if God has forced us as Christians, as his church, to refocus? Because the truth is, we can sing all the worship songs we want, or we can have the best Bible knowledge of any church, but without caring for those in need, we're entirely missing the point. And don't get me wrong, singing worship songs is so important and I can't wait to do it with you again. And knowing the Bible is really important. But listen, worship is more than just songs. It's our whole lives. And and knowing the Bible should lead us into action as we learn who God is and what he is like and his priorities for the world. That should motivate us and drive us out to those who are in need, to the poor, to the oppressed, to the widows and orphans, to those who are in jail, to anyone who will listen to the amazing message that Jesus died for them. So let me ask, just for a minute, let's imagine, imagine our missional communities became vehicles for serving our neighbours and caring for those in need. What if we used our resources to stand up for the defenceless and to fight against injustice and to rescue people from slavery? What if we decided to be known by God, not for how much we have, but for how much we give? Listen, caring for the poor is not just a good thing that that Christians should do. It's part of being a Christian. Because it's the state of our hearts, not the status of our lives, that determines our place in eternity. And so surely now in hell the rich man would repent. Surely now he would see his own situation and see where Lazarus is and realise the error of his ways. Surely now in hell he would show some sign of regret and repentance. But no, none. In fact, he still sees Lazarus as being beneath him. He sees him but still treats him with contempt. He doesn't even speak to Lazarus. He goes to Abraham. He's too important to speak to a beggar, a lowlife like like Abraham. He only speaks to the important people, like the patriarch, like the holy man, Abraham. And he tells Abraham, send Lazarus to go and get me some water. See, even when he wants relief from his agony, he doesn't show any compassion. He wants help from the man to whom he wouldn't even give dog food. But it's impossible, Abraham says. You can't go from one place to the other in eternity. It's impossible. And surely now, in hearing that, the rich man would repent. Surely now he would show some signs of remorse, but still no. And so he thinks, well, maybe there's a way to save my brothers. He's still just thinking about his own family. And again, he still sees Lazarus as beneath him. Send Lazarus. Send him to my dad's house and, uh, because I need him to warn my brothers. 
Lazarus is still just there to serve his needs. See, he may be in hell, but he's still wearing his purple robes. Still no hint of repentance. And Abraham tells him, look, they have the Bible. And the Bible tells them everything they need to know. God has said all that needs to be said on this subject in the scriptures. So let them believe that. If they don't believe the Bible, then nothing is going to convince them. And surely now Lazarus would realise the error of his ways. But in fact, it's the complete opposite. Instead of realising that he has been wrong, he tries to tell Abraham that Abraham's wrong. Can you imagine the audacity? You're wrong, Abraham. The Bible isn't enough. They need a miracle. They need more than the Bible. They send Lazarus to, to rise from the dead and go back to them. And I wonder how often we think like this. God, if only you would just speak to me. You ever said that? Lord, just show me if you just write it in the sky or send me a sign. And we open our eyes and the Bible's in front of us and we just ignore it. If only there was some kind of miracle, then I would know your will. And here's the point. If we don't listen to, to what God says in the Bible, we will never know the way to salvation. This was, this was the rich man's problem. You see, the rich man betrays himself a bit here. By asking for a miracle and saying that the Bible isn't enough, he, he, he actually saying that he has never recognised that the Bible is God's word. Even now, when eternity has been revealed to him, he still doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word. He's in the afterlife talking to Abraham and he's still asking for more signs and wonders. Send Lazarus back from the dead, then my brothers will be convinced. Well, there was another Lazarus that came back from the dead. Jesus' friend Lazarus, he died. And, and he had been dead for, for three days and he was buried in a tomb. Uh, so much so that his sisters, Mary and Martha, said, said that he actually stank. And Jesus performed the impossible and called him out of the tomb and he came back to life. What a miracle, right? Surely anyone who sees this would believe. No, they don't believe. Even when Jesus did that miracle of bringing a, a guy back from the dead after he started to decompose, they still didn't believe. In fact, it made them want to kill Jesus. You see, if we're not convinced by what God says in the Bible, nothing is going to convince us. And to be honest, most of the time, is, uh, the problem is not that we're not convinced by the Bible, but that we don't even look at the Bible. We don't give the, the Bible a chance to convince us. We say, well, I'm not convinced by what the Bible says about this area of my life, but how much time do you actually spend reading the Bible and listening to God, uh, to what God says through it? And so Abraham says to the rich man, Listen, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And listen, Jesus did rise from the dead. And, and, and even then, in the early days, people didn't believe. Jesus appeared to over 500 people and still they denied that it actually happened. We can always find reasons to disbelieve. We all do it. You have your reasons that will cause you to disbelieve. I have mine. But the Bible is how God has chosen to reveal himself. It's his love letter to us. It displays his character. It displays his nature. It displays his heart. It shows us how much he loves us. And so how can we expect to know God if we don't pay attention to what he says about himself? We need to be in the Bible. We need to trust what Jesus says through that, what God says through that. And see... In this life, 
the rich man, he had lost sight of eternity, hadn't he? He was so consumed by what he had achieved in life. Uh, He was so consumed by his own comfort, by his own sense of self-worth, by his own importance, that he never even considered what would happen to him when he dies. And this is really common, I think, when you talk to people. Just the other week, I was chatting to a friend who's not a Christian, and he's actually a pretty well-off guy, not super rich like this guy in the story, but, but he's comfortable. And, and he, said, I don't really th- he said, I don't really think about those things. I'll worry about that when I'm dead. And the sad thing is, no, you won't. See, the warning from Jesus' parable is, it's too late after you die. It's too late after you die. We can't wait until we die because just like the rich man and Lazarus, there's no way from, of going from one place to the other after we die. We have to consider these things now. We need to face up to the fact that there are two realities that are outside of this world. Don Carson puts it this way. He says there's a place of joy to pursue and a place of anguish to flee. This parable isn't about the specifics of what hell actually is. But it does show us that there's a place of joy to pursue and a place of anguish to flee. And Christians, don't just think of how Christianity affects this life. Yes, let our faith in Jesus make us good parents. Let our faith in Jesus make us fair business owners. Let our faith in Jesus drive us to be generous to the poor. But the Bible shows us that we are all headed towards a final judgment. And what we do in this life affects our place in the next. Because it's the state of our heart, not the status of our life, that determines our place in eternity. We need to weigh all of our decisions up in light of eternity. What worth is this thing that I'm pursuing in the kingdom of God? Will this thing that I'm putting time into last forever? And Jesus says, these things aren't money. These things are relationships. These things are caring for the poor. These things are are loving our neighbour. These things are seeking the kingdom of God because only the kingdom of God will last. And listen, if there's any warning to be taken from this story, it's this. Eternity is real and hell is real. Hell is real. Hell is to be feared. And just like the rich man in the story, if we don't repent, hell is what awaits. And and, and see, even when he is in hell, he still doesn't repent. He still has that attitude. He kind of proves that that he, he doesn't want to be in the kingdom of God. He wants to be where he is. And we hate to think about hell, don't we? We say, listen, how even as Christians, right? And I, I, I know as... Even as Christians, we hate think about hell. We say, how could a loving God set anyone to hell? And I think that's a fair question. Well, listen, we all want justice, don't we? We all demand justice. Wrong has been done and it must be made right. And that's a good instinct to have. And we see it so clearly in the Black Lives Matter movement right now. And for the record, black lives do matter. And no one should be oppressed because of the color of their skin. They're all made. We are all made as human race in the image of God. And our demands for justice are right and good. But the problem is, if we're really honest with ourselves, deep down, we know that when justice does come, we deserve it too. That we deserve the, the, our injustices to be punished. We know this. Think about it. How quickly would your friendships or your marriage end 
if other people knew every single thought you ever had. Think about it. Listen, if all of you knew all of my thoughts, you would want to disown me. Never mind have, have, you, have me as your pastor. We all deserve judgment for our sin. Well, none of us are immune from God's judgment because we all deserve it. And maybe you're saying, well, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't abused anyone. I've never even stolen anything. Well, two things. First, I think we all murder people. Every time we wish someone would just get out of my life. Get out of my way. You're less important to me right now. Just me, just me driving, basically. I think we all abuse people. Every time that we've seen someone as, as less important than us. Every time that, that we've looked at someone that they're a lesser being than us. Every time we've looked at someone who hasn't given themselves to us and just want them for their body. Do you not think that's abuse? And secondly, it's not the severity of our sin that's the problem. It's the severity of the one who we've sinned against. You see, when we sin, we're not just sinning against another human being, but we're sinning against God who is holy and pure. And our sin, even the smallest sin, makes us entirely impure. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin puts it this way. She says, like a bag of flour infested by maggots, no part of me is pure. Even the smallest one. If there's one maggot in that bag of flour, you're throwing the whole thing out. And so rightly... Rightly, we long for an end to injustice. We rightly want the wrongs in the world to be put right. And they will be. But here's the thing. When God destroys the impurity, injustice and sin, if we are not made pure and just and sinless, we will be destroyed too. And maybe you find this notion of hell offensive. But the truth is, there's no one who ends up in hell who doesn't really want to be there. Just look at the rich man from our story. At every stage of that, we think, now he's going to show some remorse. Now he's going to be sorry for what he did. But he never does. In so many ways, in hell, we get the fulfillment of the world that we create for ourselves. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, uh, Confronting Christianity, uh, can I just say... I, I don't want to do this during a sermon, but if, if you, you should read that book, Confronting Christianity. If you're not a Christian, read it. If you are a Christian, read it. It's 12 common questions about Christianity that, that I think that she just handles in a really loving and simple way. But she says this about hell. She says, hell is the door shut in the face of the wayward son, the divorce certificate delivered at the moment of remorse, the criminal receiving his just deserts, If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying the price ourselves. And if we're not repenting, if we're not trusting in Jesus, then this is what, if we reject Jesus now, we reject him forever. But here's the good news. Hell and eternal separation from God is not the only option. 
In fact, God desperately doesn't want you to face his judgment and he has made a way so that you don't have to. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he, he wasn't just some holy man or some martyr dying for his cause. Many people have done it over the years. But he was someone who was sinless, who was completely just, who was completely pure, taking on judgment for sin that wasn't his. Completely innocent, taking the place of the guilty. Like we should be moved in justice, but let's be most moved by this injustice, this cosmic injustice, that the completely innocent one was punished in our place. God has poured out all his judgment for sin on Jesus, and Jesus didn't deserve it. He went through it so we don't have to. He took on the judgment of God on our behalf so that when God's justice is poured out, on the world and sin is destroyed, we won't be destroyed. And simply by believing in him, we get life instead of death. We get light instead of darkness. We get mercy instead of judgment. This is the grace that I've been talking about. The grace of God is Jesus taking on, on punishment we deserve. Grace just means uh, Grace just means getting what we don't deserve. And so Jesus didn't just take on our punishment. He gave us his place of honour. So the good news is, is not just that we escape hell, it's that we gain heaven. And if in hell we get the, the fulfilment of the, the world that we create for ourselves, in heaven we get the fulfilment of the world that God has created for us. Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin again. Seriously, you've got to read it. And that's why I'm quoting it so much. She says, Heaven, in biblical terms, is not primarily a place. It's shorthand for the full blessing of relationship with God. It's the prodigal son come home. It's the bride being embraced by her husband with tears of joy. It's the new heavens and the new earth where God's people with upgraded resurrection bodies will enjoy eternity with him at a level of intimacy into which the best of human marriage gives us no more than a glimpse. Heaven is home. An embodied experience of deep relationship with God and his people on a recreated earth. <laughs> That's what awaits us when we put our trust in Jesus. Listen, if you're a Christian, this should make your heart sing. It, it should fill you with sorrow for your sin. But it should fill you with joy and thankfulness for the grace of Jesus. That your sin's been forgiven. And if you're not a Christian, please hear the warning, but hear the invitation too. God doesn't want to pour out his, ju his judgment on you. That's why he poured it out on Jesus. And Jesus loves you and he's calling you to himself to be safe forever. So choose today. Are you going to, be, are you going to live blinded to your need of grace? Are you going to be blinded by his grace? It's the state of your heart, not the status of your life that determines your place in eternity. Jesus loves you and he died for you. So let's trust him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we think of your grace, it's hard not to be emotional. We didn't deserve what you have uh, done for us. We deserved the punishment for our sin. We deserved uh, to have your justice poured out on us and for us to be punished for the injustice that we pour out on other people. But yet, because of your grace, because you loved us, you have taken our place. 
And not only have you taken our punishment, that you have given us your place of honour instead. Father, I pray uh, that that message would just be the thing that fills our hearts. I pray as a church that that message would drive us out to care for the poor and, and the oppressed and, and, the, and, and to stand up against injustice in the world because of what you have done. I pray that would be the thing that motivates us to show the world practically and through our words just who you are and what you're like. Father, I pray for anyone who's listening to this message this morning who doesn't know you yet that they would just see that grace and be blinded by that grace and just put their trust in you and be saved forever. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for the day when there is no injustice in the world and we say, come, Lord Jesus, and put an end to injustice. Jesus, we long for the coming of your kingdom and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, We're going to take communion now. We're going to do that in our homes. Hopefully you've got some bread and wine there. And... um, You know, communion is this meal that Jesus uh, gave to his followers as a way of of remembering his death. And and what's interesting about it is that he didn't give it to his his followers after he died. It wasn't like a a post-resurrection thing. He's like, by the way, this would be really good um, for you to remember me by. It was before he died. It was was what's called a prophecy. That means that it was something that told us something that was going to happen. And in that way... We, uh, as we take the bread and wine, we as Christians, we not just remember, we're we're declaring in the way that Jesus did. He said, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. And as we take it, we declare that this happened to Jesus. And as we take the bread and wine, Jesus meets us in a special way. And he reminds us of his sacrifice. He said, hey, listen, I'm here with you. I'm meeting with you. I'm, I'm surrounding you. I'm hugging you. I'm holding your hand. And I'm reminding you. I died for you. I took on the punishment for your sin so that you could be free and be full of joy and full of life forever. So so take communion together in your homes or wherever you are and and say these words, even if you're on your own, the the, the blood of Christ shed for me, the body of Christ broken for me. Um, So so let's take communion now. And John is going to lead us in, in some songs.